I read a story about 10 years ago about a Dutch rabbi who visited Poland with a group of Jews and non-Jews, and he visited Auschwitz. And he noticed that he was confronted with quite a bit of anti-Semitism in Poland, despite the fact that there were very few Jews in Poland. And he concluded, Poland doesn't need Jews to be anti-Semitic. And this story came to mind, not that anti-Semitism is exactly the same as anti-Shiism, that could be a conference all into itself. Um, but it struck me that Jordan, which is a country that has really no Shiites, I mean, Poland at least has a small Jewish community, but Jordan really has no Shiites at all. I'd be even more surprised than Somalia to find them there. It still has virulent anti-Shiite feelings among Salafis. Now, you might say, well, that's because prejudice thrives when you don't see any examples of the group that you have uh, negative feelings about, and that's probably true. But there's also more going on. And it's not just because they are Salafis, but there's also something, this is one of the things that I would like to link up with what Osama said yesterday, that sectarianism is never just sectarianism. It's one size fits all, but it also has a local context, and you should see it in its local context. I would like to talk about that um, today. So first I would like to talk about Jordanian Salafi views on Shiism, then about uh, Salafi sectarian politics in Jordan, because it's intimately wound up with politics. Then the Jordanian regime's views on Shiism, which is more complicated perhaps than it seems, and the Jordanian Salafi's interests in anti-Shiism today. So, firstly, um, Jordanian Salafi views on Shiism. Um, when I talk about Salafism in Jordan, I strictly speak about quietest Salafism now. That doesn't mean that there are no other Salafis, there definitely are, but I wrote a book about that and I have a I mean, what good is appearing at a conference when you can't promote your own work? Uh, I have a book coming out on Salafism in Jordan uh, later this year with Cambridge University Press. Uh, it will be out in paperback in about a year and a half time. So, um, anyway. Yeah, well, if Marco Rubio can do it in a debate, so can I. Um, it's not going to be. And what is interesting is that the overwhelming majority of Salafis in Jordan are probably quite, so they are not involved in political demonstrations, in uh, political debates, in uh, founding, founding political parties, in uh, participating in elections, etc. That's the group I'm talking about right now. Now, they look at Shiites, first of all, and this is basically the global Salafi discourse on Shiites, as conspirators. They see Shiite Islam as a Jewish plot that started with a, a Jew converted to Islam, and it was sort of an attempt to bring down Islam from within. Uh, and also, of course, this is a very famous example. There was a Shiite who was supposedly responsible for opening the gates uh, in 1258 for the Mongols, uh, so as to uh, overrun Baghdad. And so it was really the fault of the Shiites that the Abbasid Empire was overthrown. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with these, uh, with these stories. Uh, secondly, they see Shiites as opponents. Uh, they see them as supporters of groups that Salafis do not like, like the Lebanese Hezbollah, like Iran, like groups in Iraq, and also, particularly now, Syria. And they are working, these Shiites are working against Salafi allies, particularly the Gulf states, and most particularly Saudi Arabia. So there's a political view that Salafis hold against Shiites. And thirdly, and this is perhaps from a religious perspective the most important one, they see uh, Shiites as deviants. They see them as, uh, they, they use the word in deviants, ideological deviants. 
And they see these people as either kuffar, unbelievers, or mukhtadiyahum, people who innovate things and come up with all kinds of religious innovations that should not be there in Islam as it is espoused by them. And one of the things that I focus on is the veneration of Ali and Hussein, the Shiites regularly engage in. And they say that this is all wrong. They sort of elevate Ali to the level of Muhammad, which is obviously uh, wrong according to their uh, purest views of uh, Islam. And another thing is, it's already been mentioned several times, the Shiites reject and actively curse Abu Bakr, Omar ibn al-Khattab, and Uthman ibn Affan, the first three, according to some of these rightly guided caves. So these are views that Salafis have about Shiites. I'm actually quite interested to hear from any of you. I talked to Chris about this uh, yesterday. I've never actually heard Salafis curse these people. But, uh, sorry, Shiites. But Salafis suddenly accuse Shiites of engaging in that sort of practice uh, very often. Now, this, these are sort of the, the Salafi views of Shiism in a nutshell. But it's, as I said, it's intimately um, tied up with politics. And one of the things is has to do with the man called al-Alban, who was probably the most important Salafi scholar in the 20th century. He died in 1999. And he was the main sheikh of a growing Salafi movement in the 20th century in Jordan. And what he did was he came from Syria. He was born in Albania, as his name suggests. And he came to Syria, and when he was about 50, 60 years old, yeah, 50, he came to Jordan to visit his son-in-law and his daughter, because his daughter married a Jordanian man, and he eventually wound up living the rest of his life, about the last two decades of his life, in Jordan. Now, this man was so far ahead of the, the sort of the budding Salafi community in the 1960s and 70s, uh, in terms of knowledge, in terms of experience, in, some, in terms of having thought through all kinds of arguments and concepts in Salafism, that he was immediately accepted as the sheikh, the most important man, and he embodied the movement as it were. But in Jordan, that is very often tied up with politics, and they say, well, what, what is this movement? Salafism? What does that mean? Suddenly, suddenly we have this sheikh from Syria coming here, and he's attracting all kinds of followers, and he's preaching to them, and what is he doing? So it was seen as sort of dangerous, and in the late 1970s, early 1980s, it's not particularly clear when this happened, Muhammad al-Sadadina was expelled. He was expelled from Jordan. Now just bear this in mind, I'll, I'll come back to this later on. What was going on at the time, in the 1980s of course, was the Iran-Iraq war, with um, a lot of people perceiving this as a conflict between Shiite Persians and Sunni Arabs, rightly or wrongly. And after the Islamic Revolution, there was a great concern about Shiism, particularly in the Arab world. Just to give a personal anecdote, I was raised in the 1980s, or sort of, I went to primary school in the 1980s, and we once did a project on India, primary school. And I was told by my teacher, who was obviously educated after 1979, that there were two kinds of Muslims, Sunnis and Shiites. And Sunnis, she said, are moderates, and Shiites, she said, are extremists. And uh, people of my age, I'm, I'm sure that some of you share that experience which is something I've told many Shiites in Saudi Arabia who were talking about democracy and human rights. I said, no, I was told that you're extremist, so I'll stick to that, <laughs> which always cracked my mind. Um, and Iraq, at the time, under Saddam Hussein, was seen as a strong Jordanian ally. I mean, uh, King Hussein and Saddam Hussein were really very close at the time. So there was this idea of 
she isn't becoming more dangerous in general, not simply Jordan, but in general. And of course, uh, there was a conflict going on in which Shiite Persians were playing a major role. Now, this links back to what I said earlier. This was used by the regime in Jordan to a certain extent. Now, it, it ties up again with uh, Muhammad Nasser al-Din al-Bain. What happened? There was a man called Muhammad Shaqqar, Muhammad Ibrahim Shaqqar, who was more or less the founder of Salafism in Jordan. Not al-Bain, but he was more or less the founder of, Jordan, uh, founder of uh, Salafism in Jordan in the 1950s and 60s. And he went to the king, because he had very close ties with the king, and he said, um, I'm preaching a Salafi message here, and you've made a mistake by expelling Al-Aban because you are fighting, or Saddam Hussein is fighting Shiite power, and you've expelled the man, a Salafi scholar, who might be extremely useful to you in portraying Shiites as deviants and portraying Shiites as the enemy. And you've expelled him. Why didn't you keep him here? And the king, king Hussein at the time is said to have been completely ignorant of all of this. He is said to have said to him, well, the Shiites, they love me, don't they? Because I'm, I'm a descendant of the Prophet, and they love the, the family of the Prophet Muhammad, right? So, that, so they must love me. And Shafar said, no, sorry, Your Majesty, you've got this all wrong. They don't like you at all. They hate your guts. <laughs> so well, I don't know if you use that word, but I'm paraphrasing that. And he convinced the king to invite Muhammad Nasruddin al-Bani to come back, and perhaps this is slightly inappropriate. I, I have a tendency to draw parallels with the Godfather in my um, academic presentation. I don't know for what reason, but for those of you um, sad people who have not seen the films, um, in part three of the Godfather, there is a scene in which Michael Corleone, who is the prime boss, and he wants to go legit, he wants to do everything legitimately, but he's not really succeeding. He invites. Um, Vincent Mancini, who's the bastard child of his brother, and um, he is a real gangster, right? He, he kills people and he does things like that, and he wants him to make peace with Joey Zaza. And they make peace, but before they do, Vincent Mancini tries to bite off the ear of Joey Zaza. And his sister tries to convince him, keep him on, he's your nephew, you can use him. And Michael Corleone, realizing that he wants to go legit, but at the same time realizing that he might be able to use a small-time gangster like Vincent Mancini, played by Andy Garcia, by the way, says, stick around, <coughs> keep your eyes open, and your mouth shut. And that's basically, again, not in those words, I'm paraphrasing, and in the meantime, comparing the greatest self-discovery of the 20th century with a small-time gangster, um, he was basically saying that to Alaben, stick around, I might need you, because Alabani could be a useful tool against Shiism. Not that King Hussein was very much anti-Shiite, but there was some sort of realization that this man might be useful in the future. So he was allowed back. Now, what about the Jordanian regime's views on Shiites? I just mentioned it, it's, it's not entirely clear, but let's go into that for a moment. Partly this is influenced by the political atmosphere of the region. Uh, the king of Jordan and various kings have been very skeptical of Iranian ambitions in the region. And they're very much also against the revolutionary rhetoric that you see coming from Iran and from uh, Shia has been. Uh, this, is, this actually goes back all the way to the 1950s when the Jordanian king and the monarchy were actually fighting Nasserist revolutionary rhetoric coming from Egypt. So there is a strong tendency to protect conservative monarchies as they see it, not just Jordan, but also Morocco, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf Kingdoms. 
against the revolutionary secular states in other countries. So there was skepticism from a political point of view towards Iran and Hezbollah. <coughs> At the same time, you will find very few leaders in the Arab world who are as ecumenical as the current king of Jordan. He really makes very, very clear that we're all Muslims and initiatives such as the Common Word and uh, the Amman message from 2004 explicitly say that we are all Muslims and not just Sunnis, but also explicitly Shiites and Salafis. <coughs> so they very much try to portray themselves as moderate, as tolerant, as inclusive, and they actually use those words. You know, Islam stands for for tolerance and for, uh, you know, moderate, and go the middle way. So there is a very strong moderate, for lack of a better term, uh, moderate Islamic message emanating from the regime in Amman. So how do you combine these two things? That on the one hand, they're very anti-Shiite in the sense of politics. And on the other, they're very pro-Shiite in the sense of they are part of the Islamic world as well. And of course, and this must be on the mind of, of some of you, that it was King Abdullah II who, in an interview in um, 2004 with, uh, what's his name? He works for MSNBC. Chris Matthews, hardball Chris Matthews. That was it. He used the term a Shiite crescent. Going from Iran, parts of Iraq, through Syria, into southern Lebanon. And he said, you know, you can call it the Shiite crescent, as it were. And he was referring to a sort of undefined Shiite danger that, that, that was, you know, very dangerous to the Muslim world. How can that be explained? Well, it can probably be explained by looking to the political skepticism that the king and the Jordanian monarchy have towards political powers identified with Shiism, such as the Bulan, particularly Iran, and on the other hand, a religious ecumenicalism vis-a-vis -vis Shiites as a religious group of people. So the Jordanian regime seems to combine these two things in a way that is perhaps not as illogical as it sounds. Now, how are Jordanian Salafis interested in anti-Shiism today? And I'd be particularly interested to hear Sumaya's views on this, because this is what we talked about yesterday. We just, we just referred to it, and I, I said I have something to say about that. Because I do hope you won't just remember the reference to the Godfather about this talk. Um, first of all, it's ideology. Ideology is, is Shiites as deviants. Shiites as a challenge to the purity, supposed purity, of their own Islam. That's very important. But at the same time, the anti-Shiism of Salafis in Jordan is also an expression of their loyalty to the regime. To them, uh, support for the regime against Iran is a way of expressing their loyalty to the regime in Amman. And if they express themselves in an anti-Shiite way, they also express, into the bargain, their loyalty towards the regime in Amman. Taking sides in conflict in Syria is the same thing. So making this sectarian decision for Salafis in Jordan is not just a religious decision, but it's also taking sides in a political conflict in which Jordan is obviously very much involved. And it also has to do with self-preservation, and this is where, where the, the interesting dimension comes in. Salafis in Jordan need the link with the regime to present themselves as moderates. Why? Because Salafism has a very bad name not just here in the United States, but also in my own country, and in the Middle East to a certain extent as well. Salafism is often equated, even in the Middle East, with extremism, and sometimes even with terror, to 
the endless um, irritation and frustration of Salafis in Jordan itself. And the Salafis very often say, no, 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 we are the good Salafis. There are bad ones, but they are, to use your phrase, Hawaj. They, they use that term all the time, so I think you can go with you on that. And they say, look, we are the good Salafis. Salafism is good. Salafism is nothing more than simply pure Islam in all its purity, and we are good. And Ali al-Halabi, for example, who's the unofficial leader of the quite Salafi community in Jordan, actually pointed this out to me. He said, you know, the king himself has written a book called Our Last Best Chance. He's written an autobiographical work called Our Last Best Chance. And in that book itself, he says, you know, Salafism is good. It's Takfiris. These are the bad guys. Right? Takfiris, you, you can see that as sort of synonymous with Hawaii in a sense. Although it's obviously not as old a term as Hawaii. So, what they are trying to say is, we are the good Salafis, and we need that connection with the regime to prove that we are good Salafis. A good relation with the regime, in a sense, is, is evidence of there being good people. Now, it's very interesting to see that the same Ali al-Halabi that I just mentioned, who is sort of the unofficial leader of the quiet Salafi community in Jordan, has written a book in which he says, Sufis in Jordan, which is a large group of people, have always been supporters of the regime. They were not involved with politics, but they were always quietest, they listened to the regime, they were pious Muslims, but in the end, when push came to shove, they, they did what they were told. We, as Salafis, should really have that position that Sufis used to have. Why? We are equally loyal, equally subservient, equally obedient, equally uh, willing to fight for uh, security and safety in this country, but moreover, we are much more capable, precisely because we are Salafis, of fighting the Islamic State, or fighting al-Qaeda. Sufis do not have the proper theological arguments to fight these groups, but we do. So they portray themselves as better Sufis than the Sufis. Now you might say, okay, what does this have to do with Shiites? The reason I mention this, and the reason I bring this up, is because in that book, Ali al-Halabi also says, you know where Sufism comes from? It comes from Shiism. So he tries to bring Shiites into this. So he portrays himself and his community, not only as a better alternative to Sufism than Sufism itself, but he also portrays Sufism not just as an ineffective, loyal group, but also as a dangerous group, because it's connected to the Shiite presence and the Shiite danger which is exactly the type of rhetoric if you're coming from the regime. So this way, it all ties up. Salafis are the good ones. Shiites and Sufis are the bad ones. And you need to acknowledge the loyalty of the Salafis because that will be good for the country as a whole. So, in conclusion, Salafis do have a long tradition, uh, going back, really, to the days of, of early Hanbali scholars and perhaps even further, of uh, being anti-Shiite for, for religious and to a certain extent also for political reasons. Um, Salafi anti-Shiite sectarianism, if you'll allow me to use the term, um, was spurred by the Iran-Iran war, not just in Jordan, but in other contexts as well, and was allowed for the regime for, uh, for political purposes. Stick around, keep your eyes open, your mouth shut, please keep that in mind. And the Jordanian regime combines these two approaches, of the ecumenical approach towards Shiites as religious people, but at the same time having a skeptical view of Shiite politics as Iranian politics. And finally, um, Salafis in Jordan continue this anti-Shiite rhetoric for reasons, yes, of ideology, yes, of politics, but also self-preservation. They need this anti-Shiite rhetoric because it proves that they, in their minds at least, 